This is Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. 2015 has flown by in a flurry of sound bites. The justices in a 5-4 ruling legalized same-sex marriage. A massacre in San Bernardino. I am officially running for President of the United States. Here at Backstory, we made sense of some of those news stories by looking at America's past. Take the 2016 presidential candidates. Many adopted populist messages promising to put the people in charge. In 1828, candidate Andrew Jackson said the same thing, and it made for a hectic first day in office. A huge throng of people just went into the White House who had not been personally invited, but who felt personally invited. There was no guard to hold them back. There were no police. Nobody had planned for 20,000 people. Today on Backstory, we'll give you the history behind some of 2015's biggest headlines. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Ed Ayers, here with Brian Ballow. Hey there, Ed. And Peter Onuf. Hey, Ed. Well, guys, 2015 is going to be another interesting year for future historians. Right. We've had a historic ruling by the Supreme Court on same-sex mm-hmm. marriage, the Pope visits, we had a historic deal with Iran, and there's a new Star Wars movie that's breaking off <laughs> box office records. So. And don't forget those double-digit numbers of candidates on the Republican side. Yeah, there's yeah. that. Now, one thing I've always thought is one way to know that something's not historic is when they announce that it is before <laughs> it happens, right? And in backstory, right. we go back and find out that history's happening when you're kind of looking the other direction. Yeah, good point. Ed. But in fact, what we really do best here at Backstory is go behind whatever the headlines happen to mm-hmm. be. So today, Backstory's 2015 Year in Review. We're going to hear about the 19th century chicanery in the oil industry and its relevance to the Keystone XL pipeline debate. We'll talk with a man who dug up some disturbing family history and how that changed his view of the Confederate flag. And with all the populist rhetoric in the 2016 race, we'll look at what happened when the so-called people's president actually won the White House. But first, let's rewind to last September, when Pope Francis made his first official visit to the United States. Massive crowds greeted the pontiff as he traveled from Washington, D.C. to New York City. But one event in the nation's capital was not universally celebrated. Amid all the excitement and emotional moments over the pope's visit, there is controversy. As we mentioned during his first mass, the one concluded here a short time ago, he also led the first canonization ever to take place in America. But some claim the figure he just elevated to sainthood isn't worthy of it. That's NBC News reporting on the Pope's canonization of Junipero Serra. This 18th century friar spearheaded Spain's colonization of what is now California. Beginning in 1769, Serra established nine Catholic missions from San Diego to San Francisco. He and other friars wanted to convert Native Americans to Christianity, but they often used very harsh tactics. Many people see him as an exemplar of a life of Catholic devotion. Others see him sort of as California's 
Columbus as the person who's responsible for all the ills and tragedies of the period of European conquest and afterwards. This is Stephen Hackle, who wrote a biography of Sarah. On the eve of Pope Francis's visit, we asked Hackle to tell us a little more about the controversial saint-to-be. Sarah is an extraordinarily ambitious missionary. He's very experienced, and he wants to work with Indians who have never been baptized, who have never spoken Spanish, who he thinks are sort of like um, children in the Garden of Eden. And it isn't until 1769 that he actually meets Indians who he believes fits that description. And he is so overcome, he essentially kisses the ground and, and feels like this is a new day for him. And that's kind of the, the joyous, almost ecstatic missionary who comes to California. So how did the missions function? And tell us how they worked or how they didn't work. Well, missions were established by Franciscans as places of conversion. And the missionaries had two ideas in mind, that Indians would take up a sedentary life in which they would plant crops that they would rely on year-round to live at the mission. And they would live, in theory, under the bell where the Franciscans could mm-hmm. teach them Catholicism and be there to watch over their lives. That's the vision that Sarah brings to California. But let me just say that, you know, in the background of all this are European diseases. Indians came to the missions not for baptism. They largely came for food and as places where they right. could reconstitute their fraying communities as they collapsed, really, under the pressures of colonization the influx of European diseases. So missions are centers of refuge that Indians go to, again, not because they were so enamored with Sarah and Catholicism, but it's a place where they can hopefully hold on to their culture. And that's the paradox because, of course, the the missions were supposed to create a a new world for Indians. They were going to change their culture, their way of life. Uh, Yet you're suggesting provocatively that Indians were going there in order to preserve their culture. Yeah, that was the great misunderstanding, I think, between Indians and missionaries. Uh, Missionaries viewed these as places of almost wholesale cultural conversion. When Indians were baptized in California, this was, from the Franciscans' perspective, the beginning, the taking on of what they would call sort of a yoke of responsibility to live in a Catholic way. They would have to work as the missionaries ask them to work in the fields or in various workshops. They would have to go to catechism, attend mass. They would have to uh, marry essentially who the Franciscans wanted them to marry. They were to essentially do what the Franciscans told them to do. If Indians didn't do this, if they left the mission to visit relatives who hadn't been baptized or to hunt animals that they wanted to use to supplement their diet of the missions, they could be punished with a flogging, with blows. And this was, for Indian peoples, of course, upsetting, distressing, painful, and unacceptable. And eventually this leads, of course, to conflict in the missions. But Sarah believes that that missionaries in California should have the authority to punish Indians Mm. with blows, that this is absolutely necessary for their development as sort of civilized Catholic individuals. Uh, as somebody who had studied the uh, career of this man, a man from your perspective, he's an agent of empire and colonization. And uh, the results, uh, at least in the short and medium term, are pretty horrendous. 
What was your first reaction to the news of his canonization? Our first reaction was absolute shock. It took us, took everybody by surprise in California, I think. I mean, it, it has been a shock to many of us that, that this pope who seems to be very enlightened and very open to people's mm-hmm. suffering would want to canonize him. What we're trying to do now is figure out why Francis chose this man. And I think what sets Sarah apart is his sort of life story. Sarah presents uh, the Pope, and, and I really do think that um, Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles is very much behind this, is I think he gives the Catholic Church an opportunity to sort of have a big history lesson for those of us in the United States and in North America. Long before there were Anglo-Americans, there were Catholics, Hispanic missionaries, right. bringing their sort of evangelical message to the Americas. Yeah. So this is a, a means, this retelling of the American story of not just talking about the colonizers, but the, the colonized and uh, to bring them uh, into the church and metaphorically into the country through the church. Uh, this is a national beginning. You can sympathize with that. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the goal is, is actually not to talk about the colonized. I think mm-hmm. what the Pope and the Catholic hierarchy in California have failed to do is to effectively speak to the injuries that missions and missionaries like yeah. Sarah caused in California. I think their goal is to help us re-envision the colonizers themselves. I, I think the reason they, they want to do this is they, is they believe that there is a um, very uh, pernicious um, wave of anti-immigration mm-hmm. in North America. And I think that our national history Our early American history is really a story of 13 English colonies that struck as one, led by Protestants who created a nation-state, and it's it's a very kind of East Coast-centered nation-state story. And there's very little room in that story for people who are Latino, Hispanic, and, of course, Catholic. And I think what they want to do is help us move towards a more diversified understanding of our early American history. Stephen Hackle is a historian at UC Riverside and author of Junipero Serra, California's Founding Father. This past summer, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down several landmark decisions, including this one. A stunning moment at the Supreme Court. The justices in a 5-4 to four ruling legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. That's Al Jazeera America reporting on the opinion. In the months leading up to the ruling, Backstory was working on a show about the country's changing understanding of rights. We opened that episode with a love story from many years before, a story that put a face on this decades-long legal battle. The narrator, a man named Tony Sullivan. The scene, Los Angeles, 1971. I met Richard Adams in a bar called The Closet, appropriately enough, on Sunset Boulevard. I was traveling through the United States as a tourist and was on my way to England and then back to Australia. The very next day, Sullivan and Adams took a road trip. It would alter the course of their lives forever. He uh, took me for a drive uh, along the Pacific Coast Highway, and uh, I remember on that journey I whistled the uh, theme from Black Orpheus, where Orpheus sings up the sun in the morning. And uh, by the end of that night, we were much more involved. 
and um, I stayed for several months uh, before going on to England. Sullivan soon returned to L.A. and moved in with Adams. They were in love and wanted to be together. But this was the 1970s, and so that was easier said than done. The immigration laws did not allow uh, gay uh, and lesbian people into the country as tourists, uh, did not allow them to get green cards, and if they had been naturalized, would uh, strip them of naturalization and expel them from the country. For a few years, Sullivan played a game of cat and mouse with border agents, slipping in and out of Mexico to renew his tourist visa and worried he might one day be deported back to Australia. Then, in the spring of 1975, Sullivan and Adams got some extraordinary news. The county clerk in Boulder, Colorado, had started issuing marriage licenses to gay couples. They quickly realized that this could be their ticket to a green card for Sullivan. And so the couple flew to Boulder and got a marriage license, one of six that this clerk would issue before state officials shut her down. Adams and Sullivan filled out the paperwork and were married on April 21, 1975, in a hallway outside the clerk's office. Richard petitioned the very same day for the immigration to grant me um, residence as the spouse of a U.S. citizen, and the immigration in the following November uh, responded with a decision which said you have failed to establish a bona fide marital relationship between two faggots. That's their words. My God, what was your reaction? Uh, First of all, disbelief. I rang the uh, immigration uh, director's office and confirmed that indeed it was uh, a real letter from the immigration, not some fraud, and we decided to release it to the press. Outraged by their treatment, Adams and Sullivan decided to sue the government. Never before had a gay couple sought to have their marriage rights upheld in an American court of law. And Sullivan says he knew their fight would be as political as it was personal. I wanted to stay with Richard. We were standing up against an injustice, but uh, our goal was to be able to stay together. And also, uh, we had realized there was an injustice, and yes, we did want to correct the injustice that existed for all gay and lesbian people. But... Court after court rejected their claims, and after 10 years, their case ended in a federal appeals court. Writing for a 2-1 majority, a judge there noted that separating longtime partners could cause, and I'm quoting, personal distress and emotional hurt. Nevertheless, he ruled against the couple on a narrow reading of immigration policy. That judge's name? Anthony M. Kennedy. That's right. The same Anthony Kennedy who would go on to become a Supreme Court justice and provide the swing vote in the 5-4 to decision declaring same-sex marriage legal. Richard Adams didn't live to hear that news. He died of cancer in 2013 with Tony Sullivan at his side in the L.A. apartment where they'd always lived. In the last couple of days of his life, we had a couple of very important conversations, Uh, one about how much we loved each other, uh, one about the way that the uh, fight for marriage equality was going, and uh, there was one other conversation I had, and that is, I said, Richard, we won. We won. They never managed to separate us. And he looked at me and he thought about it and he said, you're right, we won.
Tony Sullivan helped us tell that story. He's an artist, activist, and apartment manager in L.A. His story is the focus of Limited Partnership, a documentary that aired last summer on PBS. If you want to hear more from that episode about Americans asserting their rights on issues ranging from slavery to public education, even smoking, head to BackstoryRadio.org. This year, the 2016 presidential race featured candidates from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders who claimed to speak for ordinary Americans. Pundits in the news industry ran with this idea, distilling it into one very loaded word, populist. Populist? Yes, absolutely. That's kind of the populist thing. Populist rage. Populist economics. Populist. 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 In November, Backstory countered those commentators with a show on the history of populism in America. We look back at an earlier presidential candidate who promised, if he were elected, to put the people in charge. Andrew Jackson galloped into politics in the 1820s, denouncing career politicians who thought government should be in the hands of what they called the natural aristocracy. Posing as a Washington outsider, the war hero catered to white male working-class voters. Jackson humbly bowed to crowds, and his supporters went wild, throwing huge rallies in his honor. Jackson's appeals to the working class helped them capture the White House in 1828. But outgoing President John Quincy Adams feared Jackson's election signaled the downfall of the republic. The reins of power would now be in the hands of the uncouth masses. For proof, Jackson's opponents looked no further than his first day in office and a legendary White House party. The inauguration of Andrew Jackson is one of the great pieces of American political folklore. It's the sort of thing that if you... You don't remember anything else about Andrew Jackson. You probably remember all the stories about the the bash uh, at the White House. There was a huge crowd who came to see Andrew Jackson, this sort of controversial, popular champion, actually being sworn in. Like, you know, is it actually going to happen kind of thing? My name is Harry Watson. I'm a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. My name is Jason Opel. I teach history at McGill University here in Montreal, Quebec. And I'm just finishing a book on Andrew Jackson. The inauguration was held on March 4th, 1829. All the reports are that thousands upon thousands of people poured into the city. All social classes were represented, taking up all the available hotel rooms. They were sleeping in their wagons and and everything else. That day, people came in to see their great hero. They would frequently say, you know, Jackson is, he's a general. He's on the field of battle for the people. And they all jammed into the area in front of the U.S. Capitol. He read his inaugural address, which almost nobody could hear. He gave a, you know, boring speech about, that's very, very vague. And then he rode a horse back to the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue. At the White House... The custom was to have a reception after the inauguration, and everyone expected that the people who would attend were people from the natural aristocracy, 
office holders, judges, congressmen, that sort of thing. And all those people did come, but it didn't stop there. A huge throng of people just went into the White House who had not been personally invited, but who felt personally invited because Andrew Jackson is their personal hero. And that's really the key. Right? They, they feel a personal connection to him. And, you know, there's a real kind of electric energy between Jackson and the people. There was no guard to hold them back. There were no police. Nobody had planned for 20,000 people. And that sounds like an awful lot. Sounds like an exaggeration to me. But still, uh, the crowd took over the house. They all wanted to see him, of course. So they stood on the chairs and they ruined the upholstery and they tracked mud all over the carpets. The china crashed to the floor. The glasses crashed to the floor. And the people who were there said that poor President Jackson was almost uh, squashed to death uh, by the press of people uh, trying to come in and shake his hand. Jackson himself was a very frail person, fairly old man. He had terrible injuries, uh, most of which were from duels, actually. And it was so bad that President Jackson had to be helped out, some say through a window, uh, and hustled back to his hotel. And then the uh, stewards, the people who were in charge of giving the party, had to carry the alcoholic punch out on the lawn so that the crowd would stream out there to uh, get its uh, free drinks and the the house could finally be uh, restored to order. And, you know, this is much exaggerated. I think people say, you know, one person said it's kind of like the storming of the Bastille prison or it's like the French Revolution. No, I mean, you know, there were some carpet was damaged and some furniture was damaged. Things got rowdy, but nothing too crazy. But the reason it becomes so significant is that some of Jackson's opponents said, oh, my God, civilization was teetering and, and on the verge of collapse. The rabble have really roused. From then on, the enemies of uh, populism, that is the rule of the ordinary folks, have pointed to Jackson and especially this chaotic party uh, as a demonstration that the popular will by itself is not the way to run anything. But, you know, I think this is the whole thing in a larger conversation about populism. So what? You know, so people went into the White House and had a good time. Then they went home, and the next day they were hungover. So what? It's like, well, are they really more powerful? I mean, you know, I, this is why, to some extent, I'm skeptical of something that's, that's mostly about a style, how someone addresses you, and not how public resources are going to be used, how the government is actually going to function. In the end, the republic didn't collapse as Jackson's opponents had feared. But at the same time, the people didn't exactly rule the White House either. The white working-class men who helped vote Jackson into office still faced economic difficulties in the years ahead. Governing on behalf of the masses, it turned out, wasn't as clear-cut as speaking for them. Harry Watson helped us tell that story. He's a historian at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the author of Liberty and Power, The Politics of Jacksonian America. We also heard from historian Jason Opel of McGill University. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Avenging the People, 
Andrew Jackson, The Rule of Law, and The Ordeal of American Nationhood, 1760s to 1830. To hear more of our show on the history of populism, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, or stream the episode at backstoryradio.org. This fall, President Obama surprised Americans with a piece of news that had been years in the making. President Obama rejected the proposed Keystone XL pipeline today. TransCanada first submitted its request seven years ago. Since then, it's become a political fight. Surrounded by controversy, it would transport Canadian oil to Gulf Coast refineries as the U.S. Now, many questions surrounded the decision to greenlight plans for the Keystone XL pipeline. One major issue was whether it would be safer to transport the crude from Canada by rail. Firefighters say the oil slick runs for miles along the Southern California coastline after an estimated 21,000 gallons poured from a large broken pipeline Tuesday morning. Others argued that trains would be prone to accident. In November in Alabama, these rail cars derailed and blew up, caused an explosion that led to the release of 750,000 gallons of crude oil. A few months before Obama's decision, we spoke with historian Christopher Jones, and he had been watching this debate with a certain sense of deja vu. In the late 19th century, Americans were also weighing the merits of rails versus pipelines. It all started, Jones says, when Standard Oil chief John D. Rockefeller cut sweetheart deals with railroad companies, deals that essentially blocked his competitors from using trains to get oil to their refineries. And what happens in 1879 is that a group of oil men not affiliated with Standard Oil decide to try and shift the game on Rockefeller. And their way of doing this is that they're going to build the world's first long-distance oil pipeline. Wow. So the key person behind this is Byron Benson, um, who teams with a group of other people to build a pipeline. It's called the Tidewater Pipeline because the goal is to get from western Pennsylvania all the way to the ocean. And this is an audacious undertaking. It's comparable in many ways to the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which happens just a few years later. In fact, it's so audacious that a number of people um, following the oil industry start calling the project Benson's Folly. And I'm also guessing that Rockefeller is not a big fan of this, right? Right. Everyone knew that Rockefeller wasn't going to simply sit back and let the heart of his empire crumble. Um, And he did not. In fact, Rockefeller employed several strategies to try to subvert the pipeline. The pipeline company had to buy a single unbroken strip of land over 100 miles long in order to complete the pipeline. And so what Rockefeller did was try as hard as he could to buy all of the land rights in blocking strips. In addition to just sort of trying to buy these property rights, um, Rockefeller was also completely happy to fight dirty. So he would send agents into the field that pretended to be pipeline employees to um, throw off the progress on the project. And he even hired someone who ended up dressing as a bum. And that bum would sit outside the pipeline's telegraph office where he could actually hear the click-click of the telegraph, memorize those messages, and end up reporting them back to Standard Oil. Um, So this was frontier capitalism at its sort of dirtiest and perhaps most representative. All right. So there's all this skulldudgery going on. And so does this mean that David defeats Goliath? 
Yes. So it turns out, actually, by the end of May 1879, the pipeline is completed, and they put the oil in the pipeline. It starts to flow. There's a brief moment of panic because the pressures in the pipes suddenly rise enormously, and so they have to shut down the pipes. They open up one of the pipes and discover there were several pieces of wood and rope stuck in the pipeline, and they were never quite sure whether this was careless workers or deliberate sabotage. But they clear it out, restart the pumps, and a few days later, in early June 1879, the first oil arrives in Williamsport. It's a great success. There's a spirited celebration. In fact, one of the funny stories about this is that several decades later, in the 1930s, Kern and Hammerstein actually produce a musical called High, Wide, and Handsome, and the whole plot centers around a group of oil men trying to defeat an evil railroad magnate by building a pipeline. So, Can you hum a few bars of the famous I certainly songs? cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so how did Rockefeller respond to this threat? Rockefeller ends up paying Benson and his colleagues the highest form of flattery, which is imitation. Um, and Rockefeller's always been a wily fox, and he was willing to admit he may have lost a battle, but he certainly wasn't going to end up losing the war. And within five years, he's created his own network of pipelines connecting the oil fields to all of his major refineries, and Rockefeller now controls about 88% of the pipeline shipments by 1883. And this is where the transition to pipelines for the transport of oil really gains steam. And the railroads are just pushed aside? The railroads are the big losers in this. And Cornelius Vanderbilt, um, you know, one of America's brilliant capitalists at this time, head of the New York Central Railroad, he observes as soon as the Tidewater Pipeline is completed that, quote, the oil business is sealed. There's no question that the railroads won't have any of the oil business for long. Um, And it turns out for about 130 years, he's right. That's an intriguing statement. What happens after 130 years? Well, what's going on right now is that railroads are serving the movement of oil in regions that are fairly new producers of oil where pipeline technology has not already been built. I see. And it turns out now it's much, much more difficult to actually get a pipeline constructed as debates over the Keystone XL pipeline have shown. And so... Railroads that may have started to have been obsolete in regions like North Dakota are suddenly being revitalized to carry that crude oil. So is one mode of transport intrinsically superior to the other? Most of the time when people debate whether pipelines or railroads are better for transporting oil, they're thinking about A, how much does it cost? B, how much capacity do the respective infrastructures have, and see what's their safety record. And all of those are absolutely important considerations, but there's very little conversation about what's the overall civic benefit of the difference between these transportation systems. Right. Obviously, pipelines and railroads can both carry oil, but pipelines carry a single product in a single direction, and they don't end up returning anything material in their wake. If you're a resident of North Dakota right now, do you want pipelines built or railroads? You probably actually prefer railroads being built because maybe, you know, the oil industry there is already under severe constraint as a result of the price of oil dropping over the last six months. And so if oil goes away, pipelines do you no good. 
But if the oil goes away and you have a robust railroad network, you actually have the opportunity to transition into other types of economic development. So, so what lessons do you think we should take from the Tidewater Pipeline when we think about our own struggles today over, say, the Keystone Pipeline? What the Tidewater Pipeline ended up initiating was a very long shift in the transport of oil to pipelines. And in doing so, it didn't simply act as a passive conduit between producers and consumers. These oil pipelines were directly part of building markets for oil. By making it cheaper to ship oil, they encourage the people running them to help find new uses. And so part of the reason we use as much oil as we do is because we've built technologies that make it really easy and attractive to do so. And so one lesson we can take from this is that which technologies of energy transport we build are going to shape what types of energy we use. And when we hear the word technology, we often think gadgets. We think things like iPhones or laptops, technologies that are exciting, that are sexy, that we're going to use for a couple years and then toss away. We basically have dating relationships with our gadgets. Infrastructure is very different. Infrastructure operates for decades. And in this sense, we need to think about not dating infrastructure, but actually marrying it you know, waking up in bed with 30 to 40 years from now. And so when people debate something like the Keystone XL pipeline, they often talk about, well, look at all the jobs it's going to create over the next couple years. But if we build the Keystone XL pipeline, you better believe that for 30, 40, 50 years, the people owning it are going to work hard to make sure we're continuing to use oil. And I think if we start to think in the timeframes of several decades – it starts to look much less attractive. Christopher Jones is a history professor at Arizona State University. He's the author of Roots of Power, Energy and Modern America. The old tanker train from down on the river The Southern Pacific and Santa Fe names That story is part of an episode we broadcast in June on the history of infrastructure in America. For other stories from that show... Head over to our website, BackstoryRadio.org, or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Loaded with crude oil, headed for town. The boxcar would tremble from the top to the ground. And my mother could feel it even before it came. Get up, son, to the window. Here comes the oil train. This summer, a white man shot and killed nine people in a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was a racially motivated shooting, and photos later surfaced showing the assassin hoisting the Confederate battle flag use this symbol of hate to slay eight innocent people who are worshiping their God. That's the voice of South Carolina Republican Jenny Horn last July. She begged her fellow lawmakers to remove the Confederate flag from the statehouse grounds. Many of her colleagues resisted, saying the flag represented heritage, not hate. I have heard enough. 
about heritage. I have a heritage. I am a lifelong South Carolinian. I am a descendant of Jefferson Davis. Okay? But that does not matter. The next day, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley signed legislation to take down the controversial flag. But that wasn't the end of the debate about what it means to display Confederate symbols. Why is the Confederate flag so polarizing? Is it hate or is it Southern heritage? Many people were hung and lynched under that flag. It represents history to me. It represents my ancestors. As a symbol of our nation's racist past. Our ancestors were literally fighting to continue to keep human beings as slaves. That flag never had anything to do about slavery. As you can hear, many of the voices in this public debate are filled with certainty. And that's why we wanted to offer a rare voice on the issue, someone who actually changed his mind. Waverly Agcock's love of Civil War history dates back to the fifth grade. That was when his teacher pointed out that in 1862, Stonewall Jackson's army marched down the very street where he lived. I could imagine seeing those soldiers walking down our road with the dust flying and the, and the muskets gleaming in the, in the sunlight. And at that moment, I was absolutely hooked. As an adult, Adcock spent more than a decade living out that history as a Confederate reenactor. He loved everything about it, the drill, setting up camp, and the camaraderie. He even liked the hardtack. All that made him feel a powerful connection to his ancestors who'd fought for the Confederacy. Well, I'd say we were, we were definitely fighting for home and hearth and for our state's rights, to, you know, to pr- protecting ourselves from, from that Yankee horde that was coming, you know, that Lincoln had sent down. We didn't feel it was right for him to try to tell one state how, to, how they should live. So, so to what extent did you consider slavery to be a cause of the war? Well, I always felt that, yeah, slavery was one of the causes of the war, you know. But you really want to wash it over. You just want to cover that up. You know, you know it's there, but, man, you just don't want to bring that up because you know it's, sens- it's sensitive to a lot of people. But in 2013... Adcock started having second thoughts. It was during the anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. We had a, a reporter embedded with us at the 150th anniversary, which was a mega event. I think about uh, eleven or 12,000 reenactors. Yeah, right. And um, the discussion started turning towards how do you feel about slavery and how you think your ancestors would have thought about it and things right, like right. that. And I started thinking about my um, perceptions of the war and, and where I re- was I really being – accurate or was I really being honest with myself about why I portrayed a Confederate soldier? And it started putting uh, a few seeds of doubt in my head. Right, right. And then uh, last year about this time, I discovered doing a little family research, I found out that one of my ancestors founded Augusta County, John Lewis. Wow. And then I found out that his son, Thomas, who was my seventh grandfather, petitioned the court to have one of his slaves castrated. Oh, wow. And that had a huge, huge effect on me. And I started saying that, you know, that this became very real. And that was kind of another eye opener for me. Um, It's okay to love the South, but how do you celebrate the Confederate soldier and still deal with the, the sins of slavery? It's a complex thing. I love the South. I love my ancestry. It's always been something that's been beat into my head since I was a child is that, you know, 
you revere these men and women that brought you to this place. But I can't condone for their actions sometimes. Like Thomas Lewis, I can't, I can't condone that. That's a, that's, but I also realize that's a sin that he has to deal with. But you know, a lot of your compatriots mm-hmm. would have said, I can tell you exactly how I live with that. Mm-hmm. It's heritage, not hate. I disagree. <laughs> I think it's a heritage of hate. And my, my litmus test for people who say heritage, not hate is, well, who was your ancestor and what unit did he fight with? I would say the vast majority of them cannot answer that question. And then I said, then that's not a part of your heritage. Then I tried to explain to them that the whole reason this war was fought was so whether you call it states' rights was for the right of people to own slaves. It's that, that the states could determine how they controlled other people's lives. So it's the not hate part. Yeah. Do you doubt that that's sincere? I don't think it's sincere. I'm sure they love their heritage and I can't disparage them that, but – I think people are misguided when they say it's not hate. There's a lot of people out there who believe that the blacks are at fault for how the war ended. Uh, How was that? Well, because you're a poor southern man. You fought for four, four years. You come back. Everything you've known has been changed, taken from you. And now you have to share, try to find, compete with a freed black man. And so there has to be some animosity there. There has to be some hatred. So once you sort of started down this road, it sounded like it kind of snowballed a little bit. It did. It did. Um, Every year at Memorial Day, we always did a Confederate memorial at the cemetery in in Stanton. So I've, for the last 13 years, I've always been asked to be a speaker. When I was speaking to the audience about the Confederate battle flag, you know, I, I had to mention the fact that there's much more to the South than just the Confederate battle flag, that we have a great culture of literature, of food and music and, of course, whiskey. That, to me, is much more important than basing your Southerness on a piece of fabric. A few people in the crowd walked out, but most were polite. Adcock also wrote an op-ed in his local newspaper. We cannot pick our history, he said. We must embrace the entire story of our past. And then three days later, we had the shootings in South Carolina. Hmm. Then everything seemed to erupt. There was just so much vitriol and hatred being thrown back and forth. And I felt that I needed to make a statement about that. So using Facebook, I made my comment about how I felt the flag should be treated. And, uh, that's when things really got <laughs> kind of hot. What sort of things did people say? Well, there were some threats, but there was, for the most part, people just kept telling me, you know, how wrong I was because I said I felt it was appropriate to take the, the Confederate flag down in South Carolina. They interpreted that as that I wanted to take every flag down, that I felt that the flag no longer had a place. So why is it you think that the flag has become the symbol to both sides that's so – no compromise on the flag? There's other stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. about the Civil War, but the flag. Well, why is that? You think? Southerners place so much power in symbolism. And I think that flag was very important to the soldiers, you know, because that was the designation for their unit. I can't, right. It, guess it, it is literally be any what different. they rallied around on a battlefield. Exactly. They right. rallied to that flag. But it should only feel important to those soldiers. Why have we embraced it? 
that today that people are willing to cause physical violence uh, on other people because of that flag that they have no connection to aside from that their great-great-great-grandfather carried. And as we've seen, the Confederate battle flag is spread to lots of places where it's very unlikely that somebody's great-great-grandfather carried it. Exactly, right? yeah. You know? So what has this meant for your reenacting? It means I have retired from reenacting. I've taken something that I've loved and done for 13 years and had to, to walk away from it completely, you know. That's got to come with some sense of loss, right? It is a huge sense of loss. Um, it means walking away from a lot of friends and walking away from a lot of uh, weekends spent in camaraderie with these people. So you originally got into reenacting because uh, you felt a connection with your ancestors. Uh, do you feel less of a connection with them now that you've made this break? No, I, I still feel a strong connection to my ancestors. I think uh, we as human beings make a lot of mistakes. We do things that we regret, but I think sometimes we, we learn and we grow from these things. And I think my ancestors are just like me. They, you know, I'm sure maybe they had these epiphanies at some point. Maybe some they didn't. That they were they could look around, they could see the reality too? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think they would probably be more proud of me for standing up for my convictions than to just go along with the crowd. Waverly Adcock is a former Confederate reenactor from Whitehall, Virginia. That interview is from a recent backstory episode called Contested Landscape, which explored the meaning of Confederate symbols in America. You know, guys, as we review 2015, we'd have to notice that it was an interesting year for those of us in the history business. History and the history of race in America in particular was all over the place, especially about the symbols of America's racial past, whether it was the Civil War and its flags and monuments or whether Woodrow Wilson, who had overseen the segregation of the federal government, deserved to have his name on buildings at Princeton University. So was it just an anomaly that all this stuff came to the surface in 2015? Ed, I think history is always there just below the surface, and we've seen it erupt in powerful ways. Well, we'll see more next year and the year after. The important thing we know as historians is that things that have happened this year will be with us in the future. They've started conversations that will seem important, and we wonder why we haven't had this conversation before. Ed, it will not surprise you that in explaining why there's been an inordinate amount of history in the headlines, I'm going to talk about the present. We have many instances of police using excessive force, sometimes deadly force, against African Americans in what is perceived to be racialized terms. Is this new? No. People are looking back to the history all the way to Jim Crow and then back to slavery of white violence against African-Americans. They're rediscovering that history. But we're talking about this because it's captured on video today. So something that has been going on, that is part of our history, has been made visible to us. And that's why we're turning back to history. And I think what's important is we're talking about our history collectively and that's why it's juxtaposed in some cases to heritage 
which is a special history that has nothing to do with everybody else. I think that's the real challenge is, is how do we connect the histories that we cherish within different groups that define us away from and apart from other Americans? What defines us together? And I think we've come to a point where we know there are certain symbols, certain ways of talking about us and our history that have to be shared, and there has to be a civil understanding. And so, guys, I don't want to be dispiriting, but I'm going to tell you that there's a lot more historical debate on these very subjects. Thank goodness I'd be out of a job if there wasn't. (laughs) Well, especially for my job, because we're not done with the whole issue of slavery, civil war, and its aftermath. We're coming up on now on the anniversaries of Reconstruction. And I'll have to be honest with you, we don't know exactly what to say about every aspect of all that. Historians have been working on that for a long time, and yet the general public's not heard much about it. So my prediction for 2016 and 2017 and 2018 is that we're going to be wrestling with the very issues that our former Confederate reenactor, Waverly Adcock, helped us understand. So strap yourselves in, folks. There's going to be a lot of history in our future. That's going to do it for us today. But you can ring in the new year with us online, dig up all of our 2015 episodes, and weigh in on our upcoming shows. We've got one on trial watching in America and another about racial passing. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Kelly Jones, and Emily Gaddick. Jamal Milner is our engineer. Juliana Doherty is our digital editor. And Melissa Gismondi helps with research. Our executive producer, who sadly retired this month, is Andrew Wyndham. Yeah, guys, I have to say... I can't stand it when people go on and on on public radio about their colleagues retiring. But it is the case that Andrew conceived of the show and he's put the heart in backstory. Yeah, when it seemed unlikely that there could be a radio show in the days before a podcast about history, Andrew Wyndham could hear it. And he persuaded us that we could do it, too. You know, guys, I'm pretty skeptical about founders in general, but (laughs) Andrew Andrew was our founder, and we're going to miss him. Thanks a ton, Andrew. Have a great retirement. Thanks, Andrew. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.